Welcome to Miyagi Mornings Weekly Recap, a podcast version of our daily video series, Miyagi Mornings. Links to the video version of each segment can be found in the show notes for this episode. These recap episodes are part of the Survival Podcast feed, but are numbered independently as a special weekly edition of our show in all podcast feeds. How's revenge? Daniel San, you look revenge that way. Start by digging to grave. Walk right side, safe. Walk left side, safe. Walk middle, sooner or later, get the squish just like grape. Well, good morning, folks out there in Interwebs land. We are here with Miyagi Mornings episode 61. And uh, again, we're answering something that came in on the MeWe post, which you can find my MeWe profile down there in the video notes and get on over there and friend me up. And uh, you can contribute to that. It's, it's, it's sticky to the top of my profile. And that's the best way to suggest content for Miyagi Mornings. Today I'm answering uh, a concern, uh, really more of like explain to me why this is okay. And I've had this type of concern many times over the years. I, I've talked about it a lot on the podcast, but I don't know that I've ever talked about it in a short you know, YouTube video. And it's why are things like pond liners, uh, treated landscape timbers, uh, and tires safe for use in things like gardening and homesteading applications? You know, don't they have icky, gicky stuff that gets into the soil or the water and, and causes us problems? And uh, let's start with landscape timbers. This is kind of the easiest one. There's a, there is just this stuck on 30 years ago mode that so many people seem to be in, shrieking and hollering and screaming about CCA, and specifically in the CCA uh, preservative that they used to use on these landscape timbers 30 years ago and back, um, the A stood for arsenic. So this, of course, gave people a great deal of concern because arsenic is not a thing that we generally should be consuming in large amounts. However, I will point out that most soil has some arsenic in it. It's, it's a naturally occurring substance. And uh, even those old timbers really weren't that really worth worrying about. The thing is, they stopped using CCA so long ago that if you're going out buying timbers today, there's no way in hell you're getting a timber, a landscape timber, with CCA in it. Um, they now use something called ACQ, um, which the main preservative in there is copper, which was also in the CCA. The truth is that the new treatment that they use on these uh, on the on lumber and specifically landscape timbers is uh it's probably not as good as the cca was it doesn't doesn't last as long doesn't work as good and the cca lasted a lot longer worked better and uh was real no no real threat either um the amount that you would get from it leaching into a garden bed and then being taken up by a plant was so insignificant as to be is to mean nothing because again, you, you do take in some arsenic in your daily activities, no matter how natural you, in fact, the more natural you are, it's probably the case that taking a little bit more. It's, it's not like if we get like a, a microgram of, uh, you know, arsenic in us at some point, we're going to just kick over and die. Um, the, all the testing that's been done on can you even detect any of the substances that are used to treat the timbers in a plant have come up with a goose egg, a zero. Very, very tiny small amounts in soil. Um, difficult to detect after years of use, but it's there. Plants generally take what they want. When we use chemical fertilizers, we have to trick them into drinking those fertilizers. So when you're using compost and natural soil solutions and stuff like that, a lot of the things that we think of as toxins get locked up in that natural soil building remediation process. And we don't have, that doesn't mean you should be dumping toxins on your soil, but these small amounts like this generally become locked up and not bioavailable to the plant. So it's already not dangerous. And then as long as you're not doing things uh, in a very synthetic way, even what does get released gets locked up. So it's just it's just not worth worrying about. Um, every time you take a breath, you're probably taking in more toxins than you would ever get if you ate every single meal uh, with vegetables that were grown uh, in raised beds made with timbers. It just it's just not an issue. Move on to tires. If you look at tires, 
One of the reasons they're such a problem uh, from a disposal standpoint is they don't break down. They, they release almost nothing other than some off-gassing when they're first made. That's why if you walk into a tire store, it smells like tires, right? But uh, my father ran a used tire store for 12 years when I was a kid, and I can tell you that, like, you don't even, like, we used to, like, have to go through the tires and find the ones that were, because you would bulk buy basically just tons and tons of used tires, and then he'd pick out the ones that still had some tread on them or still usable to sell, and you'd have to dispose of the rest, and we would have to load these big trailers you know, lacing tires all the way to the roof of these, these tractor trailers to get rid of them. And uh, they don't have that smell. So even that off-gassing is kind of gone after it's been on, you know, because you're not going to use brand new tires in, in a garden or an earth chip or something like that. Um, there's been testing done on that. They've never been able to determine that anything comes off the tires. Um, there's been some FUD around uh, a tire reef causing problems uh, off the coast of Florida, but that's because they did it wrong. Uh, the things they bound the tires together with were not things that would last in an oceanic environment. So it was more of tires getting some air in them and floating and becoming a problem that way. They didn't cause any environmental problems. Uh, many people use them in ponds for structure. There's no problems, uh, especially when you put anything in water. And that's why I'm kind of saving the uh, the pond liner for last. When you put anything in water, you you get a really aggressive patina of bio, uh, bio, biological life that forms on it. This happens on things like cinder blocks as well. People freak out because I use cinder blocks in my ponds, and they think that the cinder block is going to turn the water alkaline. Well, our water is already extremely alkaline anyway. Um, that's why we use locally adapted fish. But that patina that forms is so strong that one time I put two half cinder blocks together in the water, and when I removed them, they were literally biologically glued together. Um, you get a lockup. It's, it, Bill Mollison talks about it extensively in the lectures that he did back in, in the 90s in, in, uh, in Granbury, Texas at a PDC about how even phosphates get locked up in these aquatic environments. So when you're in an aquatic environment it, it, with, with any kind of anything, basically, um, it unless it's like something that literally falls apart or breaks down, it forms this this bio paint on it, and it, it literally just can't release anything into the water. Tires, when you're using them like for planters and stuff like that, or in a building or whatever, I don't think there's any real uh, health concerns whatsoever. Again, I can't find a single bit of good science that says they leach anything significant anywhere. However, what I would say is, it doesn't mean they're not covered with, with, with toxins. So I think having them cleaned off before being used would probably make a, a lot of sense. And there's, there's very few things in the world that makes a person as dirty as tire dirt. Uh, when you, if you get, if you've ever had to work with tires, you look like a coal miner. And I'd say about the only thing that makes you nastier than tires, um, is coal mining and something else I have some experience with. And, uh, be the, the so I would want to like maybe pressure wash them or something like that because you just don't know what's on them. But again, you're talking about a situation where any small amounts that can leach out of these things um, in natural soil systems end up locked up, especially when you get into soil that's being built through ongoing mulching. Basically, you're doing a slow compost, and that composting nitrogen-carbon bond actually takes a lot of this stuff and makes it inert to the point where if you look at uh, Jeff Lawton's original Greening the Desert uh, project that he did in Jordan, the first one, um, even the soil was salted, and it, it and these natural systems basically locked up the salt and made the salt inert, and plants that they didn't think could grow started growing. So what we have here is a situation where the things that people are concerned about already have a very low signature of any sort of leaching whatsoever. And then on top of that, we have this natural process of innate lockup of these types of things, which is why we should be growing things in, in as in natural way as possible. Now, the last one on the pond liner, this is one that's really not worth worrying about. Uh, the EDPM liners are basically food grade. You know, they're fish safe food grade. I mean, um, you could theoretically package food. I mean, it'd be a really expensive way to go, but you could theoretically package food uh, with an EDPM liner. So that's just, you know, it's, it's as safe as anything else out there. I think that we are right to concern ourselves with 
unnecessary intake of toxins into our body. And it's why I'm so big on growing your own food, producing as much as you can yourself, along with some other reasons for that, like food security. Um, but I also think that we can really kind of drink too much of the, of the environmentalist Kool-Aid and we can become convinced that anything that's, you know, a chemical is uh, dangerous to us. You know what a chemical is? Water would be a chemical. Water is a chemical. People say, I don't want any chemicals. You don't want water. Water is a chemical. Just saying. Anyway, with that, we've wrapped up another episode. We will catch you tomorrow with episode 62. Well, good morning, guys and gals, and uh, welcome to today's episode of Miyagi Mornings. Today, I want to talk to you as my uh, neighbor's little chihuahua has to sound off over there. I want to uh, talk to you guys about the importance of doing business and trade locally. And I think this is something that we intrinsically know, but we don't do. And I think we should do so more. And I have quite a few things for you to think about today because Miyagi Mornings, above all things, is supposed to make you think. Um, I hope to people that tune into this understand, like, even though I'm very forceful and very... Um, confident in what I tell you because I try to talk about things that I know, not things that I don't know. And when I'm not talking about something I'm sure of, I try to be clear on it. It doesn't mean I'm right. And I don't think I'm always right. And my goal with these little morning sessions is to get you to think for yourself and use the information I give you in that thinking process, not simply adopt it and make it part of your code or whatever. So there's a lot of thought that goes into this, this one. So I want to start out with something that's a little more familiar to people than buy local, do business local, what have you. Because if you think about it, if you go down to Albertsons and Albertsons is in your neighborhood, then you're doing business locally, aren't you? I mean, the people that are in there, they live right next door to you. They're your neighbors. They have a job. You're doing business locally. But it's not what I'm talking about, and I think you guys know that, and it's not the same. It's not the same as Bill down the road has a little family grocery store that also employs people. His prices are a little higher, but he's much more local because his money's going to stay, right? His money's going to stay in your economy. Where when you go to Albertsons, the money that gets paid to the employees stays in the, the, the economy, but the money that goes into the corporate coffers, the profit, leaves your economy because Albertsons is not headquartered where you are. So this leads to the concept of made in the USA, if you're an American citizen anyway, right? And unions are very proud of that label, and we should all buy stuff made in the USA. But have you ever thought about why? I mean, the common reason is, well, it gives jobs, right? It makes sure that Americans have good jobs. Not necessarily. It doesn't necessarily negatively impact employment in the United States if we have importation. Do you understand? I mean, really, I mean, if you right now tally up the number of Americans who are employed with decent to good paying jobs, whose income is tied directly to the importation of product from outside the country, it's a massive number. It may be, and this could, could be a dangerous thing too, it may be at this point, a larger number of well-employed people are employed. And I mean, you gotta think about it. Even a lot of companies that think of themselves as American companies, they do their manufacturing outside the United States. So if you look at Apple, right? There's a lot of well-paid jobs in Apple, and if it weren't for Chinese labor making iPhones, like the one I'm shooting this on, a lot of those people maybe wouldn't be employed. An iPhone might cost $5,000 instead of $1,000. Who knows? So it's not a direct impact on employment necessarily. It can be, but not necessarily. But there is a fundamental fact when you buy something from another country that will not change, and that is a, a portion of your national wealth leaves. We call that a trade deficit. If a, we could put in numbers that make sense to people. So if, if we had a little, little country of Jackistan and, and then Charlie Stan was over here and I export a thousand dollars a year to Charlie Stan and, and Charlie, um, exports to me $5,000 in value that goes out. I have a negative $4,000. That's a trade deficit. So Charlie's nation, Charlie Stan has profited in wealth accumulation by $4,000. It's not about the company's profit. That's about the money has now moved into their economy and it's left mine. And now if I'm balancing with trade with other nations that I don't have deficits with, that's better, right? But I'm still exporting a significant portion of my national wealth from Jackistan, right? So now 
let's just stop doing this at a national level and think about it in, you know, your neighborhood and your little town, your little city. When you do business with people in your local economy, and when I say local, I mean hyper-local. I mean across the street. I mean down the road and around the corner. And I mean things that the majority of the value add to them occurs locally. So if Bill has an importation business and all his stuff comes from China in a little shop called Bill's Emporium, there's no doubt you're better off shopping there than Walmart. Because Bill is going to put that money in his local bank account. He's going to pay local people and he's going to build his business locally. Right? But all that stuff is still taking money out of the United States into China. But if Tommy has Tommy's Emporium, and Tommy gets with all the local people he can find and comes up with all types of things people make, furniture, knickknacks, what have you. And his whole thing is Tommy's Emporium is from your neighborhood USA. Now all the money is staying to a degree in your economy. Now money's still going to move out because, you know, Mary is going to work for Tommy. He's, she's going to go down there and run the cash register and she's going to go buy her groceries somewhere else. And maybe some of that money is going to move out, but a lot of, lot more of the money will stay local. So if you want to build the vibrancy of the local economy, the more money you can circulate within the economy, the more powerful that local economy becomes. But there's a bigger thing here. Let's say that I run Jack's Emporium. Jack's duck eggs and farm produce. Because right, I do run Nine Mile Farm. And every week or every other week, you come to my place and you buy some stuff to feed your family with. Now, the money's really staying here. I'm buying my feed from a Texas company. I'm doing all my production locally. And I'm not sending my money to China. So you are not sending your money to China through me. right? I'm reinvesting and expanding my business. That's We already covered that. What's the bigger issue, though? What does it say about me to you if you come to my place and do business with me on a regular basis. What it says is you value me. And of course, as a business owner, I think this is something that like a lot of our dumbed down woke generation don't understand. You bet your ass I value you, right? Like I value you because you're paying my bills. Now, what that means is we have two people now in this local economy that value each other. Now, let me ask you a question, just a very sincere question. When shit goes sideways, because it does, how many people do you want around you in your local area that value you and that you value back? And a number should be as many as possible. Right? As many as possible. Even people that I don't get along with 100%, if we have some sort of value-based relationship, there's a lot better chance we're going to be able to rely on each other. You know, when the grocery stores are out of food... And all of a sudden, I'm swamped with people that need food at my little farm. Do you think I'm going to sell to them before I sell to you who's been doing business with me one time for good? Absolutely fucking not, right? I'm going to say, look, you know what? If I have surplus, then I can expand my customer base during this time of demand. And if I can build surplus to meet demand, great. But you bet your ass, the first thing I'm going to do is my book of business, my people that have valued me long term. I'm going to be there for them right now. The other side of that is, you bet your ass they're going to be there for me. You don't think they are? Think about it. Now, when when I hire a farmhand, which we're not that big anymore, but we used to do, and it's a young man and his parents live down the road, how much do they value me because I'm employing their son? Who, who by the way, that, that one of them, he couldn't have got a damn job anywhere else at the time. I'll tell you that. But he learned life skills here. But he's... I hope still using. He learned to deal with a tough ass some bitch like me that wouldn't just coddle him when he did something wrong and put a foot in his ass and said, Hey, you need to fix this. When he put the raw fuel in my truck and it cost $680 to get it fixed, I made him pay for it. Just like I would any employee. That was a valuable life lesson. And he learned from it and it benefited him. So now not only do we have the commerce there, but we had the relationship there. And that's the key with doing business locally. It doesn't just keep money circulating in your economy. 
it builds this relationship between individuals that live in the same proximity with each other. And it's one of the biggest things that we've lost in this country. And I'm telling you, that is by design. That is by design. The people that run the show do not want you spending time talking to your neighbors. You can look at recent events and you can see that very clearly unless you're so damn brainwashed that I doubt you're listening to me after this many episodes of Miyagi Mornings anyway. They don't want us talking to each other. They don't want us getting past our differences. They don't want us relying on each other because if I rely on you and you rely on me, who don't we rely on? them. You want to rebuild small town America across the country. Stop going to Walmart to buy shit that you could buy from Bobby. I didn't say stop going to Walmart. You understand that, right? I didn't say don't ever go to Walmart. Don't ever buy from Amazon. What I said was when you have the option, use it. If it's a dollar more, it's a dollar more. That dollar will stay in your local economy now. And that rising tide absolutely floats all boats. And this, this requires something else, though, to truly understand it, a fundamental understanding of money. So I'm going to do something today I don't usually do. Today's episode, which is Tuesday, I think the 2nd of March is what today is. Today's episode of Survival Podcast is going to be all about money. It's going to be the truth about money, how money actually works, and why money isn't what you think it is. And they will never teach you in the education system what money really is. Because as soon as you understand it, you now have power and you've taken it from them. You want to know more about that? Check out the episode of the Survival Podcast today. You can find it at thesurvivalpodcast.com. You want to build your local economy? Start a business and start doing business locally. And start doing business with other local merchants. Partner with other local merchants. It is time to reinvigorate the concept of a chamber of commerce, folks. Not the big meetings that they have in these big cities where everybody gets together self-important, aggrandizing bullshit. And 90% of the people there are either real estate agents or financial liars. No, I'm talking about the kind of chamber of commerce in a small town of a few thousand people. There's a bunch of guys having coffee together at a coffee shop. Oh, I know. They close the coffee shop. You want the last little piece of advice today? Go to the fucking coffee shop anyway and dare them to do shit about it. With that, I'll catch up to you tomorrow with another episode. Well, good Wednesday morning, guys and gals. Jack here. Just wanted to say hello this fine, beautiful morning. You can tell it's cold, those of you watching the video version, because I got the deer hunting coat on. When I got the deer hunting coat on, it was cold out. Mm. Let me just say, it's actually not that cold out. You see me here in the shade, right over there in the sun. It feels about 15 to 20 degrees warmer. It's one of those days you could pretty much wear a T-shirt unless you're in the shade. I get in the shade for a better shot. So here's what I got today for you. I got a twofer. And uh, if you tuned into the video, you probably saw a title just for half of it uh, on dehydrated vegetables. I want to give you another one though, because it's so simple. And it's one I think a lot of people are making way harder than it has to be. So there's a lot of talk for those that keep kind of backyard livestock and all about growing microgreens for your chickens, your ducks, your quail, whatever. If you want to do it, don't take anything I'm about to say the wrong way, but I think it's stupid. Uh, microgreens are a crop that we grow for fussy, chefy stuff for chefs in restaurants, or we grow them for our own use at home, and then we live extravagantly because instead of a little bitty garnish, we have a whole big heaping pile on our plate with our salads or whatever, and they're great for that. Your birds, your rabbits and shit like that, they don't need that. Um, I do what I'm about to explain to you guys with, and, and I've got videos on it with five-gallon buckets because I have a lot of birds uh, my primary thing that I do this with is black oil sunflower. Uh, but you can do it with a lot of different things. Just be careful. There are some things that sprouts can have cyanide in. One, for example, is sorghum. Do not do sorghum sprouts for your animals. Uh, they can have high levels of naturally occurring cyanide in them that go away eventually as the plant gets larger. So make sure you check the safety of sprouting. And think it's okay to sprout for you. It's okay to sprout for them. If I had half a dozen chickens in a backyard or something, all I would use is this. And those of you on the audio version may want to look this video up. And there's a link next to it in the video, uh, the podcast notes. But this is just a quart jar, wide mouth quart jar with a ring. The other thing that you need is some pieces of screen, like hardware cloth, the very fine stuff like you put on the screen of a, of a house. You buy a big roll of it for not much money. And you cut it in a square a little bit bigger than the jar. 
Day one, take this jar, fill it up about a third with whatever you want to sprout, fill it almost all the way to the top with water, set it next to your sink. Let it sit there. All you got to do. Next day, take the screen material, put it on the jar, and put the, the ring over the screen material. You got it? Turn it upside down and rinse the water out of it. Turn your water on on your sink and fill it up. Give it a little swirl to rinse off any impurities. Dump it in your sink. And then if you have one of those little dishwasher racks, just set it in there upside down. Okay? Take a second jar and do what you did the first time. Third, water, soak overnight. Next day, new piece of screen on, boom, set it in your thing. Take your jar from your first day, fill it up about halfway with water, give it a shake, rinse it out upside down, let it drain sitting there. Keep doing that. Keep adding jars to that system until your, thir- your, fin- your first jar is pretty much full of sprouts. Take that jar outside, feed it to your birds, fill it up a third with whatever you're sprouting, rest of the way with water, set it on the counter, let it soak overnight, keep just, and once you'll find it'll take four to five jars in general in that system, and it's just there, it's with your dishwashing, it's freaking mindlessly easy to do. You can take a little, you know, one gallon pail, stick it under your sink, that's your sprouting material. That'll go a long time. The hell with setting up complex microgreen shit to feed a damn quail or a chicken. They don't need it. It's too much work. It takes too much time. There's too many things that can go wrong. You can do it with a freaking jar that's less than a dollar at Walmart. All right. Now, here's my other one. For humans now, somebody asked, what are your favorite things to dehydrate from your garden? How do you cook with them? And how do you dehydrate them? Great question. Really easy. First of all, as you can tell from the first half of this presentation, I am not big on doing a lot of work that I don't have to do. So I don't really use dehydration very much for anything that requires what's known as blanching. So that would be things like broccoli, and I'll do that on occasion, but if I'm going to blanch something, I'm going to flash freeze it. It just comes out better. So if I'm going to do broccoli, what I'll do is I'll cut broccoli up, I'll throw it in the steamer, I think it's like four minutes of steam, and that is blanching. And there's some vegetables that either to freeze or dehydrate, you need to blanch them first, which is a partial cooking. It stops the enzymic action, and then when you freeze or dehydrate them and you then cook them later, they don't taste like crap. Green beans are another one. Like you have to you have to blanch green beans, or after they come out of the freezer or dehydrator, you have a stick. It will never you can cook it like in a slow cooker and it will it's weird. It never gets soft again. Um, so those things that have to be blanched, I don't dehydrate. Like I said, occasionally I might if I'm making a vegetable blend or something, you know, for like backpacking stuff or whatever, but in general, I don't dehydrate them. If I'm going to go through that process, I take a cookie sheet with nonstick foil, maybe two or three of them, and I have a big chest freezer, and I spread them out so they don't touch each other after they're blanched, and I put them in there outside of a container, and I let them freeze solid. Then I put them in a Ziploc bag or a vacuum seal bag, and that way when you open them later, they don't all stick to a giant clump like an ice cube of broccoli. You can't get it apart, right? It's kind of the same way that when you go to a grocery store, they flash freeze, so you can actually pull a handful out and use it at a time, put it back in the freezer. What I dehydrate, things I do not have to blanch that are useful, dehydrated. And so my three big ones that I grow and dehydrate um, are peppers, tomatoes, and eggplant. Let's talk about the eggplant first. I grow a, a, a open pollinated variety of eggplant called Ping Tung. That's my favorite one. It dehydrates beautifully. All you do is slice it up into about half inch slices, stick it in the dehydrator, and run it until it's until it's dehydrated. That's it. Peppers. I haven't did, been doing a lot of them lately because I have jars of peppers that are years old now for hot peppers to make pepper powder and stuff like that. I do sweet peppers as well. We also freeze a lot of peppers. They're a little bit more convenient to use that way. Peppers, tomatoes, eggplant, they will never be the same again after you do either freeze or dehydrate to them. Just understand that. They're, and I'll get to what you do with them next. But peppers and then tomatoes, I grow mostly cherry tomatoes. Um, they're just really productive and easy for me. I don't do a lot of big sliced tomatoes and stuff like that. We don't do sandwiches. We're keto. So I take a cherry tomato, cut it in half, dehydrate it. And I use it. I use the dehydrated tomatoes and eggplant a lot in cooking like stews, goulashes, soups, uh, sautés, and things like that. You throw a little bit of broth in for rehydration. Just throw them straight in the pan and cook with them. Uh, peppers the same way. 
uh, all, all that kind of stuff is, is mainly what I dehydrate. And then that's what I kind of use them for is soup stews, casseroles, sautés. I'll throw them in stir fries more as flavorings. I'm happy to use peppers uh, and then dehydrated onions. I'm not going to dehydrate onions. I don't have time for that shit. I will buy dehydrated onions and dehydrated celery. I get them from a company called Harmony House. I'll put a link in the notes of the video. Uh, and I just think it, it's more cost effective to buy those two things than to try to make them. And that gives you a mirepoix. You know, you got, you got your celery, your onion, right? Um, and, and, and you're, you're all good to go there. If you use the green peppers, um, I'm sorry, carrots and celery and onions are your mirepoix. I don't grow enough carrots, so I keep some dehydrated of all three of those so that I have, um, a reconstitutable mirepoix on hand at all times. And I buy those from Harmony House. But if you wanted to do the Holy Trinity, so we're going more toward a, a, a gumbo, a chili, something like that, well, then I take my dehydrated peppers and I add that to my stored onions and celery, and that's your Holy Trinity is what they call it kind of in Louisiana Cajun cooking. Now, I'm going to have to go break up the dogs back here. They're getting in a fence fight. Uh, but that's that's pretty much the gist of it. Uh, I hope you guys enjoyed today's episode. Remember, if you want to ask a question for this, me, we is the way. You are the you are the we, and I am the me, and you can ask the me a question from the we if you go to me, we, and friend me up and go to the top of my profile and find the sticky post there. That's where both of these came from today. If you have any other questions, suggestions, etc., for Miyagi Mornings, let me know. And if you have follow-up questions to this one, since I have to go deal with something, let me know, and I will answer in the comment sections of the video, either on YouTube or Odyssey. And remember, it's always better on Odyssey because they don't censor shit over there or track your data or trade it with other people like those bastards at Google do. Yes, Google, I'm talking to you right here on my YouTube channel. You guys are bastards. Bye. Take care. I'll catch you later. Well, good morning, everybody. Welcome to the Thursday edition of Miyagi Mornings for this week. Uh, I don't remember what it is. I think it's 64, but I could be wrong. Anyway, uh, what are we going to talk about today? Well, if you look at the title, it says The Modern Survivalist versus the Fear-Based Prepper. And I was actually going to call it, and that's what I'm going to call it verbally, is the Fear Porn Prepper. But I figured if I put the word porn in a title, at least in the YouTube feed anyway, it might trigger some kind of algorithm bullshit. Because, of course, that word has to be bad even if we're using it in this context. Anyway, <clears throat> and if you got off this... Uh, if you're watching me on YouTube, if you got off the censored freaking bullshit platform and got on over to Odyssey or Library, you don't have to worry about it. And you'd see a lot of stuff I put over there that doesn't show up over here because of their bullshit. Anyway, um, I just wanted to kind of lay the groundwork actually for today's podcast. I'm not going to talk a lot about what to do today, but I'm going to be doing a podcast today that's going to be about what to do. There's going to be like quick, low-cost, basic prepping that anybody can and should do, something to that effect. Today I want to talk to you more about mindset of a prepper in the way that I teach it. So there's kind of two types of preppers in the world. They're the ones that are like, hey man, hey man, did you hear what they're going to do now? They got the red line and the blue line and the FEMA camps, and I don't do that bullshit, right? Hey man, the new world order, man, they're going to get us all. That's why we got to be... No, no, no. That is nonsensical shit. That is the fear porn prepping. Those are the guys that are, I got my rifle, I got my ammo, and I got my battle rattle, and I'll just take what I need. And you'll get shot by common sense motherfuckers like me right between the fucking eyes with your bullshit. If it ever goes to that level, those people will be the first people before the sheep... Those people will die, because when they go to prey on the sheep, they're going to find that, like, for every ten sheep, there's one some bitch like me out there living in suburbia. That when you try to go through that door, bam. So that doesn't work. And that whole thing doesn't work, because it bets on one thing and one thing only. Complete and total failure. Military, etc., they're going to take you out before I do. It's stupid, it's nonsense, and it's what turns everybody off of prepping and makes it as a right-wing extremist for Trump people. No, shut up. I've been talking about this before Donald Trump even thought about running for president. Now, we come at this with a modern survival philosophy, and what that means is that every action that we take is designed to make our lives better if times get bad, or tough, or even if they don't. I came up with that with probably the worst strap line for a business 
ever conceived of and the best one at the same time. It's bad because it breaks all the rules. It's too long and it's clunky. I would have never given that to a client when I was a marketing consultant. But when I sat down in 2008 and said, i got to do this different. Yeah, I'm going to talk about prepping. I'm going to talk about survivalism. Um, that's going to be kind of my hook because I knew that industry was hot at the time. But at the same time, once I get the person in, I need them to understand this in a fundamentally different way. And I need to explain it in a way that even if the term survival podcast turns off their friends and family, when they explain it to them, they'll be like, oh, maybe I'll give this a shot. So I looked for a term, a marketing term, an umbrella term for what I wanted to talk about. And I wanted to use something that no one else was using and no one else had ever really used. So I went to Google and I put in a bunch of different terms. And one I came up with was modern survivalism. And I put quote marks around it so you look for exact matches. And the only results that I found were people that like ended a sentence with modern and then started with survivalism. No one was using modern survivalist or modern survivalism in 2008 at all, at least according to Google and Yahoo and all the other search engines. So I thought, you know, that's perfect. And what I mean by modern survivalism is we do not shun the things that work today because they may not work tomorrow, but we damn sure back them up. And, and that's the that's that's the crux of the philosophy. And then the other side of it is that terrible marketing uh, slogan: "If times get tough, or even if they don't." In other words, everything that we teach makes your life better, even if nothing goes wrong. And even the things that are only if something goes wrong are there in a way that sooner or later something's going to go wrong. So if I teach you to store water, sooner or later you're going to get a boil water order, your pipes are going to freeze up, there's going to be a water main, like sooner or later that's going to be used. And if it doesn't get used, and even if you just dump it on your plants once a year and refill the bottles to make yourself feel better about it because you rotated it, it didn't really cost you any money. And I'll talk to you today in the podcast about how to do it for completely for free and stop paying really expensive prices to, to store water. It's one of the easiest things in the world to do. But most of what we teach, like, Good common sense financial management, not over-leveraging your debt. In fact, trying to stay out of all consumer debt. Like, the only debt you should have is the house. A mortgage on a house makes a lot of sense in, in a lot of ways. And maybe a car, depending on the situation. And everything else, you pay cash or you don't buy it. Like, that, that works. If the economy booms, you're better off. Trust me. If the economy flops, you're better off. Trust me. And everything we do is that way. Having gardens, having these backyard ponds, having all this security around me from a standpoint of my food, my water, my shelter, my energy. This benefits me if tomorrow morning the economy does this and takes off, I'm better off than most people in this country. And tomorrow morning if the economy does this and tanks, then I'm better off than almost everybody in this country. And I don't say that to brag. I say that because it's not that freaking hard to do. This is not that difficult. What you do is you look at what we call your six primary survival needs. Those are food, water, shelter, energy, security, health, and sanitation. And we put systems in place to back up the things that we think we can depend on from the systems. And if anybody ever tells you the system, they don't understand what's going on. The systems. We do not have a system of support. We have systems of support which means they all can fail or some of them can fail. And in most instances, it's a partial failure of components of those six systems that people have to deal with in the world. And if what you're doing only works if the zombie apocalypse comes, you, to be blunt, are a moron. You're a moron because likely it ain't coming. And even what we might think of as being really, really bad isn't that complete and total breakdown road warrior bullshit and that means you're gonna ha i mean i've interviewed people that went through the balkan wars that's about as bad as it gets guys you know maybe rwanda genocide is worse but i mean balkan there's a lot of genocidal things going on in the balkan wars and even there even there the total breakdown never happened there were pockets of it but it was more about working with community and pooling and utilizing resources for mutual support, security, and defense. And But what this all comes down to is security. I said there's six, but they're really security. And I'll prove it to you. Because all you have to do is take the other five survival needs and find a place in the world where one of them or more of than one of them are lacking. 
and see how secure that place is. Find a place in the world that does not have a reliable, dependable, affordable food supply, and I will show you a third world nation. Find a place that doesn't have the same thing for water, and that doesn't necessarily mean there's a dam somewhere and they pump water to the house. If people have figured out how to do roof catch and all, you're good. But you show me a place where you can't depend on the water supply, and I will show you a third world nation. You show me a place you cannot depend on having sufficient energy to meet the needs of the average person, and I will throw you a I show you a third world country that you're not safe walking around the streets in. You show me a place where people cannot get adequate shelter, or a place in a you know like in the United States. Go to a place where sh adequate shelter is hard to come by, and it's a dangerous place. It lacks security. And show me a place that lacks security in of itself. You've got a problem. And show me a place where the health and sanitation needs of people are not met in some way, and I will show you a third world nation. So what we learn about that is these other needs that, that span off of security are forms of security. That's why you refer to things like food security, water security. And what happens when you follow what we teach is you end up looking back at a place like I'm standing in right now, and you go, I got food security right there. Right there is food security for me. I have water security right there in the same spot I'm pointing to for those that are on the audio podcast. And I got water security over there, and I got water security over there, and I got water security over there, and I got food security over there, and over there, and over there. Plus, I got food security in the house with stored food. I got energy security in that I have backup power in the form of a generator and stored fuel. I've got energy security in that we have ways to light the home until the generator's on. This is why it would just happen in Texas when they were talking about how people were, you know, suffering so bad in Texas. I did a video right in the middle of it. I was sitting on my couch with a steaming cup of coffee. Because we have planned for failure. But it's also why in the middle of the pandemic, when things were basically normal, just you were restricted in where you could go or whatever, you have videos of me hanging out with my grandkids, listening to classic rock music and gardening. And we didn't give two shits. Because we're prepared for failure at any level. And most of your failures are going to be local or regional, and they're going to be relatively short duration. But understand, short duration is two, to two weeks to 30 days. And that's what most people need to at least get to, is a good, solid, 30-day preparedness program. Can you take the keys to your car, throw them in a drawer, and close it, and put a time lock on it for 30 days? Go out to your power box, open the box, shut it off, close it, put a time lock on it for 30 days. You can't leave, you can't go anywhere, and you don't have any energy. Can, can you, and if, and if you, you're on a city water, we're turning your power off, won't make your water stop flowing out of your sink, can you shut all the water off in the house? Yeah, right? Time lock it for 30 days. Now, if you are supplying your own water, then you don't have to do that, Right? If you're supplying your own water and you have repair mechanisms in place for if it fails, you don't have to turn your water off. If you have enough energy that you're not dependent on the grid, then you don't have to turn your power off. You see how that works? Because, well, you, you're self-sufficient in that way. But I think it'd be a good experiment. Can you do it for 48 hours? Can you do it for 48 hours and not have, like, your food going bad in your freezer? doesn't even require a lot of equipment to do, but if you don't have the right mindset, you can't do it. And that's what this, this is really all about. It's about mindset. The mindset of the, the fear porn prepper is asinine. It is the dumbest thing, and it is the most damaging thing that's ever happened to the world of modern survivalism, survivalism, prepping, call it whatever you want to. Making TV shows about these lunatics and shit, I mean... I was approached over and over and over again when they were making, like, Doomsday Preppers and all that. And the, the exact response that the, the producer to that show got from me face-to-face -face when I was roped into a dinner with him and didn't know what was happening was, Go fuck yourself, you piece of shit. Because I despise what those people are doing to my world, which is common sense, rational preparedness that I'm trying to do for the stability of my fucking country, you piece of shit. And you know what he said? I can't afford to have integrity in my business. And I said, that's why you're a piece of shit. Because I can't afford to work with a bitch that ain't got integrity. That's a true story. And the guy that wrote me into that deal, you know who you are, was like, yeah. That's why I don't work with that bitch either anymore. Because I have to have integrity. Because you can't 
be out there saying that you are on the side of people for their own security and not have integrity. And anybody in this business that's selling on fear, you have no fucking integrity. None. Not a little bit. You got none. Because as soon as you cross that bridge, you're preying on people instead of helping people. Do you understand the difference? And everything that I've tried to do, even when I fucked up and made mistakes, at least was done with the intent of helping people. And that's why we talk about things like building a business, because it provides security. That's why we talk about cryptocurrency, because it provides security. That's why we talk about stacking some silver and gold, because it provides financial stability and security. Everything we teach actually goes back to security. And I'm going to tell you this. If somebody shared this with you and you forced your way through it, this was hard to listen to, go hug their neck and thank them. And then tune into my podcast today and learn how to do this for your family. Because what kind of man or woman doesn't see to the security of their family? And I'm not going to curse you. And I'm not going to lump you in with the fear prep or porn people. And I'm not going to lump you in with the government. Because you've been conditioned to think you didn't need to. Wake up. Open your damn eyes. Look around the world. And understand. The systems that the government has in place, the systems that industry and consort with government has in place, tend to be reliable. But they run on the edge of a knife at all times. And it takes one thing to cause cascading failures. And even if it'll come back, you can either be comfortable drinking a steaming hot cup of coffee and talking to your YouTube audience like me, or you can be freezing cold and having everything in your house die, everything in your house spoil, everything in your house rot. If you're older or you got young babies or something like that and it happens in the middle of the summer due to a hurricane, and as soon as that shit goes through, it's 102 degrees out, you have people dying in your house because you can't cool one room. Don't let that shit happen to you. Tune in today. I'll tell you how to prevent it all. It's not that hard. It's not that expensive. And it does help you live a better life if times get tougher, even if they don't. And anybody tells you you don't need to do it right now, you need to not listen to them. Well, I'll end with this. There's three types of people in the world when it comes to prepping right now. There's people that are prepared and getting more prepared. There's people that are not prepared but know they need to be prepared. And there's dumbasses. There's sheep. That after all this shit that's happened in the past year, they still don't think they need to be prepared for anything. Watching it on your TVs, living it in real life. I'm sorry, if that's you, you're probably not listening anymore and I can't help you. When you're at least getting into phase two of knowing, we can help you get you prepared. Take care, guys. Well, good morning, folks, and welcome to Miyagi Mornings, episode 65, I believe it is today. Uh, once again, I'm answering a question off the MeWe post, so if you want to participate, the best way to do it, I think every single one this week came from MeWe, so get over to MeWe and uh, you know, set up an account and then look me up and then friend me up and then right up at the top of my profile, you will see a post that is specifically for this. So today was an interesting one that I picked out. I think there's like 70 posts there now asking different questions. And I'm trying to keep a lot of variety. This one is definitely something we haven't really talked about on Miyagi Mornings anyway yet, though I've talked about it a bit on the podcast, on the Survival Podcast. It was a question about using water plants, specifically free-floating water plants, so something that just floats on the surface as feed for your livestock, which is a great idea. And something I'm going to be doing extensively this year using a plant called Water Hyacinth. I will also be using some other plants. Uh, but the question was, what would you use, water hyacinth or duckweed? Uh, given that I'm building this main feed-based system on water hyacinth, clearly the answer for me is water hyacinth. That doesn't necessarily mean that it's the only answer. And so I'm answering this question with, it depends. And uh, I'm going to give you actually three plants today. And whenever I do this and I, I start naming plants off that people have not heard of, they're like, how's that spelled? What did you say? You know, Okay, right down in the video notes. Each one of the plants is listed, and they are water hyacinth, okay, which is not really a hyacinth because it's a water plant and water hyacinth, but that's what they call it. Uh, then there is duckweed, which really quack quack duckweed, and then there is azola, which is a floating nitrogen-fixing fern. All three of these are highly palatable to livestock, specifically things like poultry, ducks, and chickens, which a lot of you guys keep. I'm not really sure how rabbits um, and st such feel about duckweed and uh, 
water hyacinth and things like that, uh, and azole. But I guess you could try. And you could look it up and find out if anybody's done it. When it comes to water hyacinth, it seems to be the most versatile. And I can't see how rabbits wouldn't eat it. Goats eat it. Cattle eat it. Pigs eat it. Chickens eat it. Gooses eat it. Um, I even saw one thing where a dude was feeding it to his guinea pigs. right? So I mean, it's basically everything eats it. Now the water hyacinth is a plant that floats and these kind of it has stems that are kind of like bulbs of air, and then it has these big leaves that are about you know a couple inches round, and then these beautiful purple flowers that look like a lot like wild hyacinth, which is I think why they call it water hyacinth. It is also considered an invasive species in many states, including my own. And so in some places it's banned. So you might not use it if your state bans it and you don't have the risk tolerance for it. I'm, you know, maybe I have a little more risk tolerance than you. It seems to be of the three the one with the highest potential. The dried leaf and stem has a protein content of about 33 to 38% with an average of about 35. This is equivalent to soybeans. Now this is this is insane if you think about it. you have a plant with a protein uh, uh, percentage equivalent to soy that grows like a weed for free on the surface of water and slightly polluted, slightly dirty water is even better. It will grow faster and it loves heat. Now I know some people say, oh my god, you can destroy the universe, Jack. Okay. <laughs> Texas is a big state. If I take Texas on the map and I pull it out like a puzzle piece and I put the t- southern tip of Texas on the Red River, which for those not familiar with geography would be the northern border of Texas with Oklahoma, the, the top of Texas would then touch Canada. That's how big Texas is. I'm not bragging, I'm just making a geographical statement of fact. There are places in Texas where absolutely if water hyacinth gets into the native water systems, it can go completely mental and it will overwinter and it will become a, a problem. And guess what? All those places, it's already there. And there's also other plants like water lettuce that are doing the same thing. And the, the, the Department of Making You Sad goes nuts down there if anybody touches it and uses it for anything. Up here, we just had negative 2 degrees in the freaking lake that 60,000 acres froze over. It can't survive our winters. So treating an entire state the size of Texas like you have to go to the lowest common denominator doesn't make sense. If you want to ban this state of Texas, I think it should be banned by county. And then... At least it would make sense, even though that horse is out of the barn. So if you don't want to do that because your state says you're not allowed to and you do what the state says, and I can see in some instances like if you have a commercial nursery and inspectors come around, why you really would. Um, Or you're in a place where you really do feel it could be a a danger, and there are places it hasn't quite gotten to yet that could overwinter, and I, I wouldn't want to be the person who brought it there. But in our climate, northern climates, it works great. Azola, I don't know of any place that it is banned, and duckweed is native to the United States, so I don't know where the hell it would be banned. So you've got two other ones that can be used. Azola, I think, has about a 28% dry weight protein count, which is still really good, 24 to 28%. And duckweed is in the mid-30s, so it's also equivalent to soy. In my experience, all these people talking about duckweed doubles its size every day and you can just grow pounds and pounds. No, you can't. I grow the hell out of duckweed, and I find in some of my systems it does really, really well. and others, it kind of is lackadaisical. But if you start trying to save any for your animals, like in winter, and you're out there harvesting it every time, like every time it, it, it fills up a space, you take half, you'll find that you might go a whole season and end up with a couple pounds by dry weight. And it's not a bad thing. It just isn't the volume that people seem to think that it is. Azola is not much better for that, and I've never done it with water hyacinth, so I'm not sure. The thing about water hyacinth, even though it's got a lot of air in it and what have you, so do the other two, but it's a rather large plant. And if you own ducks, I'm not sure about geese, but I know that ducks, both Muscovies and your regular you know, mallard-based ducks, which all your other ducks that you keep commercially are mallard-based. That's where they come from is the mallard. Um, will eat the roots and the stalks and the leaves. So as a duck owner, it is ideal for me. The other thing that water hyacinth does, in my opinion, better than azola and duckweed is it cleans water systems. So there's been research done where they've taken commercial duck operations 
and they run the duck wastewater, which is sewage basically, through lagoons that they fill with water hyacinth. And then they measure the out the water that leaches out, and it's cleaner than commercial uh, restorative systems by going through the natural process. The water hyacinth is, it, it, you have to have enough to balance against your ducks. But the water hyacinth is such a nutrient um, removing plant that it does a better job than like commercial sewage. And then if it then goes into some sort of riparian tree-based system, all it does is it's fertilizer for trees. That's exactly how I'm going to be using it. And because the ducks eat the roots, it's a much larger yield that you can get for feed for your animals. The other side of it is all of these can be composted and all of these can be used as direct mulches. They're high in nutrients and they're, depending on the water they're in and what's being run through that water, they're also fairly high in minerals. Now obviously a plant cannot have a mineral in it that isn't in the water that it's growing or the soil that's growing in. But when, you, when you're running a fish-based system and you're feeding fish feed, there's a lot of minerals in those um, fish pellets because that, that fish pellet is made up somewhat of fish meal, usually from oceanic fish. So now you're talking about bone, blood, all this fish waste product, plus you're talking about oceanic, so you're talking about an animal that's lived in the mineral-rich sea. So now you're recycling that nutrient into your compost or into your mulch. And, and to me, that's very exciting as well. And you can do this with all of them. And let's talk about what each one does well and what each one doesn't do well. Water hyacinth grows really fast. When it gets hot out, it barely moves until it gets hot out. It also dies when it goes below freezing. And I mean it dies hard. Bruce Willis level die hard. So if you want to stay self-sufficient in it, you need some sort of indoor tank with some overhead lighting, and you need to bring it in, at least a few plants, to overwinter out of the cold. That's actually a good thing, because if you are environmentally conscious, which I am, and you don't want to be the person that brings an invasive species in, as long as you're in a place where you get a good hard freeze every year, it ain't going to happen. I don't care what your Department of Making Your Sad says. It is a large plant. And if you're feeding it to animals that don't eat the roots, you may have to remove the roots here and the plant there. Though I don't see any reason to do that. I would put it into a compost heap, let the animals take what they want, which is precisely what I'm going to do. Mine are just going to take some roots. If you wanted something that you were going to chop up and dry and save over winter, I think water hyacinth is the best product. It's, be, it's being done all over Africa right now to reduce the cost of poultry feeds. And these are just guys going out with like little barges they, they hand build and, and pitchforks and pulling these out of these lakes that are, that are being literally screwed up hardcore. Let, don't get me wrong. The, this plant in a place it doesn't belong can cause a problem. That's why like if you live in South Texas, I wouldn't recommend you play with it. First of all, they're going to come get you probably sooner or later. Somebody rat you out. And two, you actually can make the problem worse. Again, you get up above the, the latitude where you get hard freezes, and it's just not a problem. It's just not a problem. Then the other side of it, like I said, there are places where, yeah, it can be a problem, but it already is. And you growing some in a tank in your backyard ain't going to change it. Now, what you could do is go harvest out of the wild, and if somebody asks you what you're doing, you could say, well, I'm trying to help. Right? I'm not propagating it. I'm destroying it. So that would require actually mechanically destroying it. I think that might cover your ass. You might want to check with your local officials on that. Um, now, azola. Azola is kind of in the middle here. It's a much larger plant than duckweed. Duckweed is not the smallest, but it's one of the smallest flowering plants in the world. Actually, little tiny flowers. Hard to see, but they're there. And, uh, but azola is a fern, and it grows more lily pad-like, and little fronds all over it. And on its little roots that dangle down, it fixes nitrogen. So it's a really great plant. Not only is it palatable to livestock, specifically ducks love it. It also, since it fixes nitrogen, it's a high nitrogen mulch. So simply by removing it and putting it in your garden beds, you are adding nitrogen to your beds, and all the minerals and other things go along with it. And it also is a great compost activator. My least favorite among these, and I still like it, is duckweed. Duckweed is... Uh, it's just very, very small. Now, the way I use duckweed, I have a couple of my metal tanks that I use duckweed in them. Water comes up from a lower tank, overflows these three top metal tanks, goes down to a center tank and down to the bottom. 
and I keep duckweed in the top three. And they're three of the oval six foot by two foot galvanized steel stock tanks. One of them, it doesn't grow worth a damn it. The other two, it grows crazy and like it'll form a mat like a couple inches thick. And all summer long, when it's growing really, really well up there, I just have a standard size kind of like strainer, like a little hand one with a little fine mesh in it like you'd use to strain noodles or something in a kitchen. And I just keep it out there, and it hangs on the inside of my facade so it's just out of the way and I don't lose it. And I just go through, and I just take one big scoop, and wherever I put the duck pools that day, one of those pools, I just drop it in there. And they love it, and it's a supplement, but I don't think it really reduces my feed bill by much. My new system that I'm putting in is going to have an in-ground pond that's going to be just a few inches raised above grade to grow water hyacinth. People are like, the ducks are going to eat it all. No, they can't get there. Just relax. I know what I'm doing. been doing this a while. And uh, it's also going to have three other about four-foot square, 20-inch deep tanks. Those tanks are going to primarily grow crayfish, which are feedstock for my other uh, systems. The top of those tanks will have a layer of azola if it does well. And I think it will because we'll be running duck wastewater through that system, and that should do really well. The truth is you can use any of these plants. Livestock love them. And what you're doing is an awful lot, like just yesterday I featured kelp meal. I'm sorry, liquid kelp is a a soil amendment on the podcast. And it has 60 to 70 uh, minerals in it, depending on the source of the kelp, whether it's like Norwegian or Pacific or whatever kelp. You will not get that in a freshwater aquatic system. Obviously, salt water has salt in it, and salt, right, in the real world before we refine it, is made up of almost all the trace minerals. There's just very, very small amounts. But plants take what they want, and a plant in suspension in water can take anything out of that water it wants. So it concentrates some of those those minerals in it, and that's how you can then use kelp and get so much bang for your buck on your plants. Like I said, you're not going to have the incredibly diverse and, and, and highly available uh, bioavailable minerals in a freshwater system that you do in a saltwater system. But it's about it's like second best. So when you're using these plants, not only are you getting a nitrogen kick, not only are you getting a compostable, not only are you getting a feed, not only are you getting protein, you're getting a mineralized infusion that is highly available to your other plants. So to me, it makes sense for all three purposes, no matter which of these plants you pr- you decide. Actually, four. Cause, and I like to try to come up with even more functions, and I bet I could if I tried. I like to have five functions for every element that I have in my designs. But definitely your top ones here are a mulch that gives a nitrogen kick and a mineral kick. A compostable, a compost activator, because these things are very good at activating it. So you put a big handful of this in the center of your compost pile. you got a compost activator. A livestock feed. I mean, and and the ability to clean wastewater. So I think that they they they're beautiful for all that, and they also function as a fish feed. Nothing I know of eats water hyacinth, but koi and goldfish will keep the roots pruned back, so they're eating that. Um, duckweed, I can tell you, duckweed. Uh, goldfish and koi eat the hell out of it. So if you're running systems with those in it, now you have another feedstock. I'm not sure on Azola. I only ever grew it once. It didn't overwinter, and I didn't do much with it. I'm going to play with it this year. And if it doesn't work in that system with the crayfish, I'll bring duckweed over there. In fact, what I'll probably do is like Azola in one, and or Azola in two, and duckweed in the third one, since it's already there. And uh, anyway, this is a good question. And we need to start thinking this way, and I want to finish with, I know it's a long one, but I want to finish with why. We need to start thinking this way because we need to become more self-reliant in our ability to feed not just us, but our animals. If we're buying 100% of the feed that our ducks and chickens and rabbits and pigs and everything eat, then all we're doing is converting low-end grain into high-end meat. And that's much better than going to the store and buying it. But if we really want to start building our self-sufficiency, which we measure in percentage, right? self-reliance we measure in time. If you can go three weeks without electricity because you have a generator and enough fuel, you're self-reliant for three weeks. But self-reliance is a time-based equation. Self-sufficiency is a percentile game. And if you can get 50% of the feed for your livestock from your own land, 
then you're 50% self-sufficient infinitely. And that's the game that we need to be playing. So I enjoyed this question. I know it's a long one for Miyagi Mornings, but I hope you enjoyed the answer. That wraps up the week. And remember, you can always catch the Miyagi Mornings Weekly Recap. It goes out on Saturday mornings. iTunes, Stitcher, all that, and listen to it in audio instead of seeing my shiny face here on the video. Take care, guys. Thank you for tuning into this week's episode of the Miyagi Morning Recap. Remember, I do Miyagi Mornings to create short and shareable content for your friends and family who may not be up to listening to an entire podcast. Each of these segments from today's show is only five to eight minutes long and can be shared as both YouTube or Odyssey videos. Links to the video files for each segment are in today's show notes. If you want to submit a question for Miyagi Mornings, just email jack at thesurvivalpodcast.com with Miyagi Mornings in the subject line. All subjects other than politics are welcome for this special series.